when you read the history of Israel in the Old Testament, <clears throat> we see how they started so well, and uh, it was always this up and down experience throughout the Old Testament, particularly read Kings and Chronicles. <clears throat> they had a good king or a prophet, and they would all come up, and then they would sink so quickly. And then again, God would raise up a prophet or someone and come up for a little while and sink again. And that was God, the experience of God's people in the Old Testament. And Jesus came to establish a new covenant, which was to ensure that we don't live this up and down life. So whenever a Christian is living that up and down life that people lived in the Old Testament, it would indicate that you haven't really understood what the new covenant is all about. God wants us to live a steadily upward life. <clears throat> if you want to know what is God's perfect will for your life, here it is in Proverbs 4 and verse 18. Now, don't get discouraged if you're not living this life. If you see it as a goal and say, Lord, I want to get there. I don't want to care how long it takes. I'm going to get there. But you've got to see the goal. Proverbs 4.18 says, The path of the righteous. Now, in the New Testament, we know that the righteous person is the one who has received Christ, whose sins are forgiven, and who is now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, God declares us righteous. That's called being justified in Christ. That's what we read in Romans 5.1. So when we are righteous, the path that God has ordained for us is the, like the light of the sun that starts at dawn at sunrise. Sunrise is a picture of being born again. When Christ comes into our life, the darkness is gone, the sun has risen. Jesus is called the sun of righteousness that has risen and light has come in. From that point, it is not God's will that you should be going through phases of light and darkness and light and darkness. No. It should be like the light of the sun that shines brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter as the sun rises in the sky until the full day, which is noonday, which is a picture of the time when Christ comes back and we will be like him. So that is God's will. From the time we are born again till the time Christ comes back, like the sun never backslides. Never. Not even for one second. It's getting brighter and brighter. It's not so bright at sunrise. It gets brighter and brighter and brighter and says the path of the righteous person is to be like that. If your path is not like that, don't get discouraged. But say to yourself, I'm not walking the path of the righteous. The devil's cheated me of my inheritance. This is your inheritance in Christ. 
and the devils, I believe the devils cheated the vast majority of Christians of their inheritance. It's like you're having a father who's a billionaire and he's written a will with everything in your name, all his bank accounts and all the property he has in different parts of the country. And some crooked lawyer has cheated of your, you of your inheritance. And you're living on a hundred dollars a month when you could be living in with millions because somebody cheated you. That's a perfect picture of how most Christians are living spiritually. The devil has cheated you. Now what I'm trying to say is don't let the devil cheat you anymore. I'm just trying to show you your inheritance in Scripture. What Christ purchased for you, not with billions of dollars, but with something more precious than billions of dollars, with his own precious blood. Purchased for you. Not because you deserve it or I deserve it. It's purchased freely. But you have to claim your inheritance. God doesn't thrust it on people. But if you say, Lord, I want it in my life at any cost, I guarantee he'll do it in your life. There's no partiality with God. What he's done for one, he'll do for you. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. If you persist like the others did. So this is one verse you must always bear in mind. Two verses I'll give you. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Both are related to each other. Proverbs 4.18 The path of the righteous is like the sunrise that shines brighter and brighter and brighter. You say to the Lord, Lord, that is my, I am a righteous person in Christ. I've received Christ as my Savior and my sins are forgiven and I'm righteous in Christ. I'm justified in Christ. Now this is the path I should be walking in, but I've been deceived by the devil. I've been cheated of my inheritance, but no longer. I want to get back on this path. The second verse is in the New Testament, which is like a commentary or a fulfillment of this verse in the Old Testament. And that is in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3 and verse 18. Now when it says here that with an unveiled face we look in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, the mirror is a type or a picture of the Word of God. You read in James chapter 1 and verse 23 to 25 that when you look into the perfect law of liberty, which is God's Word, it's like a man looking into a mirror. So that's why it's called here, God's Word is called a mirror. But it's not, in the Old Testament was like a mirror, the law was like a mirror that showed you your face, your heart condition, or would be more exact to say it's like a scan or an x-ray that shows you your inner condition. That's what the law did. The law was like an x-ray that showed you your inner heart condition. But in the New Testament, God's word is like a mirror in which we don't just see, we see the glory of Jesus first. And then we see our condition. Do you remember in the Old Testament, we read in Isaiah chapter 6 that Isaiah once saw the glory of the Lord. And when he saw the glory of the Lord, immediately he saw how filthy he was. And when he saw how filthy he was, and he acknowledged it, God cleansed him immediately. 
So I'll come back to this verse. Let's turn for a moment to Isaiah chapter 6. Because this is what God wants to do to us. See, most of us have the habit of looking at the faults of other people. And there are plenty of false people all around us. If you want to find fault with people, you just got to look around. Everybody's got something or the other wrong with them. There's nobody in the world who's perfect. Isaiah was like that. You see that in chapter 5. He looked at people who were just accumulating more and more property for themselves. He said, woe unto them, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 8. Woe unto those who keep on adding property and joining field to field as if they want to live alone in the midst of the land. And then he said, woe unto those in verse 11 who get drunk from early morning onwards. And woe unto those, verse 18, who tell lies and drag sin with cords of lies. Verse 20, woe unto those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe unto those who are wise in their own eyes. So he was spending his time looking at people and what he said was right. Here were covetous people and here were drunkards and here were liars and all types of sins around him. He said, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. And he was absolutely right. And very often the fault you find with other people, they are wrong. There's no doubt. You see something wrong in that person and something wrong in the other person and something wrong in your wife and something wrong in your husband. You're right. They have those faults. And Isaiah was right. But then we read what the Lord did to Isaiah. He gave him a vision of himself, of the Lord himself. And he says in chapter 6, verse 1, I saw the Lord. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians 3. In the mirror, I see the glory of the Lord. Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. And he saw all the angels who never sinned. And Isaiah himself was a sinner, but he could find fault with others. The angels who never sinned, they were not finding fault with all the sinful human beings on earth. Isn't that interesting to know? That we who are sinners find fault with each other and the angels in heaven don't have time to look at us and say, look at that sinner, look at that sinner, look at the other sinner. They were seeing the Lord and when they saw the tremendous holiness of God, these sinless angels who are called seraphs here, it says they had six wings, but with four of them, they covered their face and covered their feet and said, we can't look at God. Sinless angels saying, we can't look at God. He's so holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And when Isaiah saw that, he stopped saying, woe unto that group and woe unto that group and woe unto the other group and woe unto the other group. He said in verse 5, woe unto me. And that's a very blessed day in your life when that change takes place, where you stop saying woe unto that person and woe unto that person and woe unto that person and woe unto your husband and woe unto your wife, and you start saying, woe is me, because I am an unclean man. And as soon as Isaiah said that, it says immediately, one of the angels took a burning coal from the altar and verse 7 touched my mouth and said your sin is taken away your sin is forgiven see what happens 
as soon as he stopped looking at the others and started pronouncing war on them and looked at himself in the glory of God and saw how unclean he was and acknowledged it, his sin was forgiven. Then God said, I'll cleanse you, cleanse him with a fire from heaven. And the fire not only cleansed him, but empowered him. And then the Lord said, now you can go as my messenger. The Lord said, whom shall I send? And he said, I'll go now. Now you're qualified to be my messenger and go and tell my people this. I want to say to every one of you, you don't have to go to Bible school to be a messenger of the Lord. In the Old Testament, you know, only certain people could be priests and prophets. But in the New Testament, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will all be my witnesses. You'll all be my messengers. But how did Isaiah become a messenger? He had to see the glory of Jesus and see his own need, confess it, be cleansed. And the fire of God touched him. God said, now you're my messenger. And God can do that to every single one of you sitting here. But you got to start where Isaiah started and see your own need in the presence of the Lord. And I can tell you one thing. If there's one person who does not want you to be the Lord's messenger, it's the devil. And he can stop you from being God's messenger by making you always concentrate on the weaknesses of other people. And you spend all your life saying, woe is this group and that group and the other group and the other person and the other person. And what have you accomplished in your life? Finding fault with everybody around you. What you say is right. Is there a fault in that person? Yes. Is there a fault in that person? Yes. Is there a fault in your wife? Yes. Is there a fault in your husband? Sure. What do you accomplish by pointing out all those faults? Instead of that, if you see the glory of the Lord, and the Lord can show you your own weakness, and He can cleanse you, He can make you your, His witness and His messenger, and you can accomplish something useful on this earth before you leave. See, I have only one life. I recognized that many years ago. And I can either spend that life finding fault with everybody else, or seeing the glory of the Lord and allowing Him to make me His messenger. I wasn't always like this. I was a very shy, reserved type of person, in, right from my childhood. But God filled me with the Holy Spirit, and that changed me completely. The fire from heaven touched my heart, and that Holy Spirit is for you as well. But stop finding fault with others. Do you know that the devil is called the accuser of the brothers? That's one of his titles. In Revelation 12, 10, he's called the accuser of all believers. Remember, this is the title of Satan, the accuser of believers. He's not accusing worldly people because they're already his children. They are in his grip, but he's accusing God's people. Wherever he sees somebody who claims to be a child of God, a Christian, he's going to find some fault in him. And he's an, called an accuser. And when he sees you also accusing one of God's children, the devil says, great, I've got a co-worker here on earth. And that's not one of my children, it's one of God's children who's my co-worker. Great. I've got my friend in the enemy's camp. That's in God's camp. Do you know that when you accuse somebody, you're actually holding hands with Satan? You probably didn't know that till now, but you better know it now. 
and say, Lord, let me see your glory. And what will happen when you see God's glory? Like Isaiah, you'll see your own need. And you'll see how unlike Jesus Christ you are. And as you acknowledge that and cry out to God, the Holy Spirit will, that's what Isaiah experienced, the fire of God coming and touching his lips will come and touch you. And what will happen? Let's turn back now to Second Corinthians in chapter 3. We read that verse. Remember Proverbs 4.18 where we started? The path of the righteous is like the sunrise that shines brighter and brighter and brighter. Okay, the same thing here, Second Corinthians 3.18. We see the glory of Jesus, just like Isaiah saw it. And we see our need. And then the Holy Spirit not only shows us the glory of Jesus and our need, but He changes us, transforms us from one degree of glory to another. Remember what I said about the sun? Brighter, 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 brighter. The same thing is written here. That our likeness, we started out, when we start out, we are all like the devil. As children of Adam have got that likeness of Satan in them. But from that zero point of darkness, that we are born again, and the Holy Spirit changes us from one degree of glory to another degree of glory to another to another to another till we become like Christ completely. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is what we call the power of resurrection, delivering us from death. Everything that's sinful in us is spiritual death. And resurrection power is the power that lifts us up from that spiritual death. The reason why Jesus rose from the dead is to show that he has conquered death. He has conquered Satan who had the power of death. So think of your own sin as spiritual death. You cannot, just like you can't raise a person from the dead, you can't raise yourself, but the Holy Spirit can. Raise you out of that dead state. Turn with me to Hebrews in chapter 2. Here's a verse that tells us that until the day Jesus died and rose again, the power of death in this world was held by Satan. It says there, since the children, that is we, share in flesh and blood, Jesus also took part in flesh and blood. And why did Jesus take part in flesh and blood? not only to die for our sins. See, we know that Jesus died for our sins. And I also mentioned in Romans 6 that our old man was crucified with him on the cross. But here it says something else, that when Jesus died, he rendered Satan powerless. Satan was the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. Read Hebrews 2.14 carefully. It says here that the devil had the power of death. Right from the time of Adam. When Adam sinned, the devil got the power of death over man. And when Jesus died and rose again and conquered death, he took away that power from him. That's what it says here. And he made him powerless. That could not take place until Jesus died and rose again. And that's why in the Old Testament, they could not overcome sin. I mean, you know the Old Testament commandments. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't worship idols. 
don't take the Lord's name in vain. I can show you millions of non-Christians who keep those commandments. Don't you know non-Christians who never commit adultery and never kill anybody and they don't tell lies? Those commandments, people who had a little bit of respect for human beings and fear of God could keep it. You did not need the Holy Spirit's power for it. There were many people in the Old Testament who could keep many of those commandments. Never worship idols, never commit adultery, and never steal, and never kill, and etc. But what is, you never find a commandments like, in the list of ten commandments, you never find a commandment like, you shall not get angry, you shall not lust after women, you shall always give thanks. These are all in the New Testament. Why are those commandments not in the Old Testament? Because nobody could keep them. I mean, a, a child who's in the first grade, you don't teach that child geometry and algebra and trigonometry and all these complicated things in mathematics. You teach that child addition and subtraction. So in the same way, in the Old Covenant, God could not give them commandments like don't get angry and don't lust after women and uh, don't be a hypocrite and don't be proud. There's not even a commandment, don't be proud in the Old Testament, even though that is the worst sin of all. Because man could not keep it. But in the New Covenant, you find all these commandments. What does it prove? That now we have the power to keep it because the devil was defeated on the cross. The devil has got no power over you. That's why you never have to be afraid of the devil. You don't have to be afraid of demons. Because the devil was defeated on the cross. Now I'll tell you one thing. Satan doesn't want you to know that he was defeated on the cross. I remember once somebody brought a lady to us for prayer and my wife and I were sitting and talking to her and whenever I ask anyone to accept Jesus as their savior I also tell them to speak to the devil and say I don't belong to you anymore you were defeated on the cross. So I told her to say that I said now tell Satan I told that lady you were defeated on the cross Satan and she looked at my face, changed her appearance, and said, I was not defeated on the cross. That was a demon. A demon was speaking through her mouth to me, exactly like the demon spoke to Jesus. So I did what Jesus did. I said, in Jesus' name, get out of her right now. One sentence. And the devil left. Not because of me. The devil is scared of Jesus Christ. You can say that. If your heart is clean, Christ lives in you, and you believe that Satan was defeated on the cross, you can tell any demon anywhere to get out in the name of Jesus. I've said that numerous times, and every single time the demon is obeyed with one word. No need to fast and pray or any such thing. And the demon left. Then I told that lady, now tell the devil you were defeated on the cross. And she said it. Satan, you were defeated on the cross. She was free. But I learned something that day, that the devil does not like to be reminded that he was defeated on the cross. 
So I decided to remind them quite frequently <laughs> and to teach other people to remind the devil quite frequently that he was defeated on the cross. I tell you, he doesn't like to hear it. That's why you... Have you heard a sermon about the devil being defeated on the cross? Very rarely, if at all. I was a Christian for so many years, I never heard a message on the devil at all. Why? The one who's troubled us the most, do you think he wants to know that, wants you to know that he was defeated on the cross, that he has no power over you? You know, I've heard the story that in the olden days, 150 years ago or so, when there was slavery in these parts of the United States. And you know how President Abraham Lincoln, somewhere in the 1860s, proclaimed liberty for all the slaves. There was no television those days. And even if there were, the slaves living in their little huts couldn't watch it. There wasn't television. And even the newspapers, a few of them here and there. But do you think the masters of those slaves wanted the slaves to know, hey, fellas, President Lincoln has proclaimed liberty for all of you. Do you think the masters wanted those slaves to know that? Definitely not. Exactly. So Satan doesn't want you to know that, not in 1861, but 2,000 years ago, your liberty was proclaimed on the cross in the resurrection. The one who enslaved you cannot enslave you anymore. His power over you was broken when Jesus died and rose again. Hebrews 2.14 He made him powerless. It doesn't say he killed him. We know that Satan is not killed. He's alive. But he's powerless. It's like a terrorist from whom all the weapons have been taken away. He's helpless. It's like a paralyzed snake. It's not dead, but he has no power over you. I found many Christians who are scared of the devil. Why are they scared? Because they feel Satan still has got power over them. Have you read this verse? That Jesus made him powerless? If you have never heard it before, believe it today. That Satan was made powerless on the cross and through his resurrection. That is why the resurrection of Christ is so important. He died and took away the devil's power and proved it by rising from the dead. That is the power of Christ's resurrection that we need to believe in and the Holy Spirit brings to us so that we can boldly look at Satan and say, you cannot touch me anymore, Satan. You have no power over me. And if you have never said that to the devil ever in your life, you better say, tell it to him today sometime. Satan, you got no power over me. You have harassed me long enough. You kept me blind to my inheritance in Christ. But I discovered something today. Hey, you cannot touch me. You cannot touch my children. You don't have power over me. Even in the Old Testament, 
Turn with me to the book of Job. You read about the devil trying to harass a godly man. And just by the way, <clears throat> I never get tired of telling people that the first book in the Bible written was the book of Job. Genesis was written by Moses. And Moses lived 500 years after Job. The reason why Job comes in the middle of the Bible, middle of the Old Testament, is because they put all the poetic books together. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those are called the books of poetry, and they put them together. But it's not in the order in which it was written. If the Bible were put in the way it was written, the first book would be the book of Job. Because he lived 500 years before Moses, who wrote Genesis. Now listen to this. Isn't it interesting that when God wanted to write a book for man, the first book he wrote was not about creation of heaven and earth. That was written 500 years later by Moses. The first book he wrote was the book of Job, which is a story of a man who was attacked by Satan and who triumphed over Satan, even in the Old Testament. That's amazing. That's very, very interesting that the first book God wanted man to read was about how a godly man overcame Satan. Even before Jesus came, how much more today? And there's one very interesting thing written here, you know, that God was boasting about Job to Satan, saying, see what a man he is. And Job said, uh, Satan said to God, verse 10, you have made three hedges around him. Satan is telling God, you put three hedges around Job. And that's quite a revelation because it's true about us too. You put a hedge about him personally, you put a hedge around his family, his house, his wife and children, and you put a third hedge around all that he possesses, his business and his finances and everything. And that's a very interesting truth to know, that there are three hedges around me and you, if you're a child of God. One, around you personally. A second hedge to protect your wife and children. And the third hedge around your business, your property, your bank account. Do you believe that God is interested in your business and your bank account? He certainly is. Otherwise, how will you live on the earth? You need to earn your living. God is interested in protecting it. God is interested in protecting your family. God is interested in protecting you. But that doesn't mean we won't have troubles because sometimes God allows the hedge to be opened so that the devil can come and attack you so that you can overcome I remember my, my oldest grandson one day asked me, Grandpa, why does God allow the devil to exist? He was only about seven years old, and I was very excited when a seven-year-old asks you such deep questions like, why doesn't God get rid of the devil? Which is a very sensible thing. Why allow him to exist if he's doing so much harm? So I told him, do you know how you build up muscle? You build up muscle by subjecting your muscle to resistance. 
Why do people do exercise to build their muscle? Because any muscle, whether it's running or stretching your uh, spring and all with your hands, whenever you subject a muscle to resistance, that muscle becomes stronger. So spiritually, it's when you face resistance and you overcome it that you become strong. Now, God's not going to resist you. He allows the devil to resist you so that you can become stronger. He doesn't allow the devil to resist you to overcome you. He wants you to become stronger. That's why he allows the devil to attack you in some way, and you resist him, and you overcome him, and you become stronger. I can think of numerous things in my life where the devils attack me through other people or directly, and it's resulted in making me stronger when I knew the purpose of it. In the days when I did not know the purpose of it, I just get discouraged and say, oh, the devil's attacking me, I'm discouraged. And that's what probably many of you are saying. But we see in the book of Job that God, the devil could not come through a hedge without God's permission. Every time he opened a hedge, okay, I allow you to do that. And at the end of the book of Job, you see Job comes out a stronger man. Much better than he was in the beginning. That's the message of the first book that God wrote in the Bible. And there's a message there for all of us. And much more in the New Testament, where it says when Jesus died, we read that. Turn again to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Through death, now I'll tell you why I'm laboring this point, because so many people don't know this. Through death, Jesus made Satan powerless. And he did it to deliver us, who through fear were in slavery all our lives. Do you know that fear brings us slavery? If you're afraid of anything on this earth, you're afraid of the devil, whether you know it or not, you're a slave. Because you're not supposed to live in fear. You live in fear because you don't fear God. There's a beautiful verse in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, which is paraphrased in the Living Bible as, if you fear God, you don't need to fear anything else. Remember that. Isaiah 8, verse 12 and 13 in the Living Bible. If you fear God, you need fear nothing else. I got that verse written on a piece of big piece of wood and I've hung it up in my house for 40 years. If you fear God, you need fear nothing else. I remember once a corrupt government official came to my house to try and frighten me, uh, saying I had to pay some more tax or something like that. It wasn't true. I pay, always pay my taxes. But you know how these people try to scare you. And uh, he came in, there was some documents and all that, and said, you got to pay some more tax. And he said, no, I said, I paid everything righteously. I've got all my documents. And then I said, have you seen that verse I told him? <laughs> this is how I live. <laughs> if you fear God, <laughs> you need fear nothing else. <laughs> Thank you. He never came back. <laughs> it's really true. If you fear God, you don't need to fear anything else in your life. And you don't have to be afraid of the devil either.
So he came, it says in Hebrews 2.15, to deliver us through the, to, from the fear of death. You see, the fear of death is the greatest fear. There are other lesser fears than that, like the fear of losing your money, or the fear of sickness, or the fear of poverty, or the fear of your children suffering, or something like that. But the greatest fear is the fear of death. And once Jesus delivers us from the fear of death, we are free from all the other fears as well. So here it says that the reason why Jesus took away the power of death from Satan and made him powerless, why did he do that? So that he might deliver us who had so many fears, including the fear of death, which is the worst, and save us from slavery. Fear brings us slavery. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to show us that the one who had this power of death has lost that power over your life anyway. You don't have to fear him anymore and you don't have to be afraid of anything. You think that's good news or bad? It's good news. It's the best news in the world. Because I tell you, all over the world, I have seen believers living in fear, anxiety. I lived in that like that myself. Oh, what will happen? What will happen in the future? I mean, we sing in that song, uh, because he lives, I can face tomorrow, but we forget all about it when we face a problem. But it's true, because he lives, we can face tomorrow, we can face the entire future. We, not just because he lives, but because his life is a resurrection life that conquered Satan on the cross and rose up from the dead. So we must never think of the resurrection of Christ as something small. When Christ rose up from the dead, it was the proof, first of all, that all my sins are forgiven. That many of us have known for many years. But also that Satan's power over me is gone. He's not dead, but he's made powerless over me. He still has power over people in the world because they don't give themselves to Christ. But if you've given yourself to Christ... You got this hedge around you and your family and your property and your business and your bank account. Satan can't touch it. I believe that anyway. According to your faith, be it unto you. So if you say, no, I don't believe it, well, then of course it won't work for you. But if you say, I believe it. You know, God's promises are not fulfilled automatically. I want you to know that. Every promise of God in the Bible is like a check. A check signed by Jesus Christ. Now, if you get a, somebody sends you a check for $100,000 and you frame it up and put it on your wall, you think you're going to get any money from that? No. So you get a verse and you just frame that verse up and put it on the wall and you don't claim it in your life. It's not going to bring any result in your life. Let me just show you this last verse before we close. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. It talks about all the promises of God. It's a great verse. You must remember it. All the promises of God, as many as there are, in Christ they are yes. Do you know what that means? That means every promise of God is signed by Jesus Christ. It's like a check on the bank of heaven signed by the Lord Jesus Christ but it still doesn't become yours 
because you got to sign your name on the back side of that check and give it into the bank. You just keep it in your with you, you pile up all these promises in your drawer or you don't, don't get anything. But it says, now we have to put our Amen to it. The same verse. Jesus Christ has signed it saying yes, but you have to put your Amen, that is putting your signature at the back of that check, then it becomes yours. Do you know what the word Amen means? It's a Hebrew word. It is not an English word. And as I've often said, many people think Amen means prayer is over, you can open your eyes. That's not the meaning of Amen. <laughs> that is not the meaning of Amen. <laughs> amen means it will be so. Somebody prayed something and you say it will be so. Instead of saying Amen in future, you can say it will be so. It's the same thing. It'll be more meaningful. Somebody prayed for something, and you say, yes, it will be so. That is faith. Amen is an expression of faith. What that guy prayed, yes, it will be so. Or what I prayed just now, it will be so. Amen. So, what he's saying is, all these promises of God will not become yours until you say, what? Yes, it will be so. It will be so in my life. Sin will not rule over you. That's just in Romans 6.14. But if I say yes, it will be true in my life, it will be true in your life. You remember the story of the two blind men who went to Jesus and said, Lord, we want our eyes to be open. And Jesus said, do you believe I can do this for you? Whenever you see a promise in Scripture, sin shall not rule over you, Romans 6.14 or Philippians 4.19 My God will supply what? All your need according to His riches in Christ Jesus. Do you know Philippians 4.19? And you say, what do you say? Amen. It will be so. It will be so. And the Lord is not saying, can you do it? What did He ask the blind people? Do you believe? I can do this for you. He didn't ask the blind people, can you do some eye exercises and improve your, come back six months later and see if I can improve your eyesight. No. Do you believe, Lord, I want to open my eyes to be open. Do you believe I can do it for you? Whenever you come to a promise in scripture, what the Lord is asking you is this question. Do you believe I can do this for you? And you say, oh Lord, I'm not worthy. When are you going to be worthy? Are you going to be worthy after a hundred years? <laughs> I don't believe I'll ever be worthy. The only thing I'm worthy to receive, I'll tell you, is hell. <laughs> if I go to God and say, Lord, give me what I deserve, hell. No, 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 no. I don't ask God to give me what I deserve. You know what I go to God, I say, Lord, give me what I don't deserve. Give me what Jesus Christ purchased for me. I don't believe I'll ever deserve it. But it's my right and inheritance in Christ. Give it to me in Jesus' name. I believe you can do this for me. Not because I'm worthy, but because Christ purchased it for me on the cross. Satan can have no power over me. I tell you, for so many years I used to be scared of the devil, but no longer. One day the Lord said to me in my heart, as Satan was scared of Jesus Christ, he will be scared of you. I said, wow. He said, Brother Zach, 
Where does it say that in the Bible? I'll show you. Don't ever believe anything I say until I can show it to you in Scripture. 1 John and chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 17, the last part. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. So, when Jesus was on earth, was he scared of the devil? Yes or no? No. As he is, so am I. I'm not scared of the devil. The devil was scared of him. And if I have faith in that verse, the devil's going to be scared of me. But as I said, he's not going to be scared of me if I go around criticizing everybody in the world. Then I'm in fellowship with him. He's the accuser of the brethren and I join him. I say, Lord, I finished with that. The Bible says we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with evil principalities and forces. I remember years and years ago the Lord said, if you want to overcome Satan, stop fighting with human beings. And I decided long, long ago that I will never fight with human beings. Because the moment I start fighting with human beings, I lose my power over Satan. We do not fight with flesh and blood, but we fight with evil forces. And I'll tell you the reason why some of you don't have power over the devil is you're fighting with each other. You're fighting with somebody in your home. You're fighting with some relatives or neighbors. Well, no wonder you don't have power to fight the devil. Decide today that you will not fight with flesh and blood anymore and say, Lord, I'm going to concentrate on fighting the devil. And he's been defeated on the cross and he cannot touch me. I do not fear him anymore. That's how God wants us to live. That is the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we are to experience. If you fear God, you need fear nothing else. Let's pray. <clears throat>